Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Jason. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that God has brought you here to worship with us this morning. And before I forget to say this, to all you fathers out there, happy Father's Day. Very thankful for you and how insofar as you are a good father, you point us to our Heavenly Father and remind us of his kindnesses towards us. Having said that, let me turn you to the living and active word of the Lord as we find it in Psalm 41. Hard to believe we're here. Psalm 41. You understand that when we hit Psalm 41 and we finish it, that's the close of the first book of the Psalter. Psalter is broken up into five books. And by finishing Psalm 41, we'll close out the first book. And next week, we'll jump into Psalm 42, and we'll enter into the second book. Having said that, let me read for you Psalm 41 in its entirety, all 13 verses. And before I do, brothers and sisters, I remind you, as always, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so, as he has graciously and kindly and lovingly given it, may we, by grace through faith, humbly and rejoicingly receive it from his hand. Psalm 41. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed. In the land, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our holy and merciful Father, 
in light of your abundant mercy towards us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now humbly present ourselves, body and soul, as living sacrifices before you. We do so knowing that we rightly belong to you, and we do so knowing that in Christ Jesus we are holy and acceptable to you. We come to worship you, Father, in spirit and in truth, and we ask that by the gracious working of your Spirit, that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so by your Spirit and by your word, may we discern that which is your will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I said this a little bit earlier, it's Father's Day. So again, happy Father's Day. And over this past week, as I've been reflecting on this psalm, this psalm which has as its focus the topic of mercy, and as I've been reflecting on the godly Christian fathers that I've known throughout my life and had the privilege of observing them interact with their children, I'm struck by the reality that the virtue that is most characteristic of those Christian godly fathers is mercy. Whether it be my own father, who is a godly man, who is a godly man, who has shown mercy to me and to my siblings, or whether it's some of you, other godly men that I've been able to observe, other godly fathers, mercy is the Christian virtue that marks them all. And it's the kind of Christian godly father that I strive to be myself. And it shouldn't surprise us that mercy is what marks each one of those godly Christian men. Because mercy is not just a virtue that will characterize men who are Christian or even fathers who are Christian, but it will mark all Christians. And here's the beautiful thing about Psalm 41. Psalm 41 really gives us a picture of what that merciful Christian life lived in light of God's mercies will actually look like. And so what we're going to look at this morning then are three realities of the merciful Christian life. Three realities of the merciful life that we will live as Christians. First of all, we'll see that the merciful are blessed. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. That God blesses us with mercy, and out of that mercy, we are merciful, and amazingly, He then blesses that mercy that He actually works in us. And so we'll look at that first. Second of all, we'll look at the reality that the merciful are afflicted. You're like, ooh, I liked that first one. Not so much that second one. The merciful are afflicted, though. We'll see that in verses 4 through 10. That in this fallen world, as God's people, we will be afflicted. And we'll look at some of the reasons why that is and what some of those specific afflictions are that we will experience. And then thirdly, finally, we'll look at the reality that the merciful, even through their afflictions, are upheld. In verses 11 through 13, we'll see that the Lord upholds the merciful until the very end, until they come all the way home and behold the face 
of their merciful God for all eternity. And so here's my hope and prayer as we ruminate over this psalm together. We're not going to spend near as much time as I'd like to. But my hope and prayer is that the Lord would use this psalm, first of all, to convict us as his people of the ways in which we're not as merciful as we ought to be and repent of that and look to Christ. And then secondly, I hope that you also have the eyes to see the ways in which God has graciously, mercifully worked mercy in you so that mercy comes out of you in your dealings with other people to the end that you thank him for doing that. And pray that he would do it more and more. And even see that in each other. And thank the Lord for the evidences of his mercy in our midst. Through the mercies that we show one another. So may the Lord be pleased to use his word to that end this morning. Let's look first then at how the merciful are blessed. We'll look at the superscript and we'll look at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. So what do we know from the superscript? This is a psalm that David wrote to close out book one of the Psalter. And he says in verse one, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Now this phrase here in the Hebrew, blessed is the one, is not a phrase that we're stumbling into for the first time as we've been going through the Psalter. Hopefully, as I say that, your mind starts to drift back to the very first psalm. Because what does David open the entire Psalter with? He says, blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He goes on to describe that the blessed one is the man who walks in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. And loves his law. And delights to obey it. And hates the ways of the wicked. And walks in the ways of the Lord. So we see, first of all, in the Psalter that the blessed are those who walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. The next time this phrase pops up at the beginning of a psalm is in Psalm 32. And hopefully your mind drifts back there and you remember that David says, Blessed is the one who what? Whose transgressions are forgiven. So we see from the Psalms that the blessed one is the one who walks in covenant faithfulness with God. His sins are forgiven. And now here we bump into Psalm 41, and what do we learn about the blessed? We learn that blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now that word there, considers, is interesting because in the Hebrew, it's the same word that we bump into in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 3. And in those opening verses of Proverbs 1, you remember that the author is telling us that these Proverbs have been given for a variety of reasons. And one of them, says Proverbs 1 verse 3, is to receive instruction in wise dealing. That word wise dealing there is the same Hebrew word for considers in Psalm 41 verse 1. So we could very easily translate this verse then, blessed is the one who has wise dealing dealings with the poor. He knows how to interact with them. Think about David's role in Israel, by the way. He's the king of Israel. So he's the one who should be spearheading this and leading by example. Israel's commanded to do this in Deuteronomy 15, by the way, to care for the poor and the weak and the needy in their number. And so David is saying, I'm such a one by God's grace who has wise dealings who knows how to interact with them and cares about their plight 
and cares for them well as I see their needs and as I see their weaknesses. Now, that word poor there is interesting as well because as is often the case in the ESV, the more helpful translation is actually in the footnotes. So look there, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Look at the footnote there. It says, or weak. Weak is probably a better translation because this word doesn't just encapsulate the idea of those who are financially in dire straits, although it does include them. It includes anybody who is lowly, whether that be social standing, economic standing, emotional standing, whatever the case may be, whether they're spiritually weak. David's saying whatever their situation is, blessed is the one who considers them, who notices their plight, who feels compassion for them, and knows what to do to actually help them. And so what are we being commanded here? We're being not only shown what the blessed life is, but brothers and sisters, it's our great privilege to live this blessed life. And so we're commanded to show mercy to the poor and the needy, aren't we? To such an extent that Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 25 that when I come back, I'm going to tell some of you, when I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water to drink. And when I was hungry, you gave me food to eat. And when I was naked and cold, you gave me clothes to wear. And the Lord's disciples will say, Lord, when did we do that? And what's Jesus' response? He says, whenever you did that to the least of these, my brothers, whenever you did it to the least of one of them, guess who you ultimately did that to? You did that to me. So now enter into the joy of your master. And so what we see, brothers and sisters, is this is our calling. How we treat one another when we're weak and needy, Jesus says, is ultimately how you're going to be treating me because this is my body. These are my people. They are the members of my body. And part of the reason that David says that we should live this way, compassionately, wisely, mercifully towards the poor, is because we will be blessed for doing so. And so David actually lists some of these blessings. Look at the first one that's listed there in the second half of verse 1. David says, In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So this is sort of a generic catch-all. When you have a day of trouble, the Lord is going to deliver you. And when we look at David's life, we see that again and again and again, don't we? The Lord delivers David when he falls on hard times, when he's in days of trouble. Look at verse 2, as David lists more blessings. The Lord protects him, the one who's merciful and compassionate, and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. So what's essentially the summary here? The summary is David saying, listen, we're called to be merciful by God. And when we're merciful towards the poor and needy amongst the covenant community, we're living in covenant faithfulness. And so guess what belongs to those who walk in covenant faithfulness from the Lord? They are beholden to the covenant blessings, aren't they? And what are those covenant blessings? I'll protect you in the land. You'll prosper in the land. And so David's saying that's exactly what's going to happen. If you are compassionate and merciful and walk in covenant faithfulness before the Lord. 
David goes on to say an incredible blessing here in verse 3. He says, the Lord sustains him on his sickbed. So let me pause right there and just let this remind you that when David's saying that the merciful will lead a blessed life, it doesn't mean that they won't get sick. It doesn't mean that they won't have enemies. It doesn't mean that they won't be afflicted and suffer. We'll look at that more specifically in verse 2. But the idea here is even when they're on their sickbed, what's going to happen? Look at the second half of verse 3. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Now, that's a very unfortunate translation. And again, let's look at the footnotes to see a better translation. <laughs> look there at the bottom. For me, it says footnote number four. You turn all his bed. In other words, in his illness, you turn all his bed. Now, who turns over your bed when you're sick? Someone who's caring for you, right? A good nurse is constantly making sure, are you comfortable? Are you okay? Let's resituate your bed. Part of that is because you lay on one part of your body for too long when you're really sick, you might get bed sores. But the other thing is you're just uncomfortable. You're already uncomfortable from the sickness. The bed shouldn't make you even more uncomfortable. And here's the incredible thing, brothers and sisters. What David is saying is part of the blessing that the merciful experience is in their time of need and weakness, because they've shown mercy and compassion to others who are needy and weak, God shows mercy and compassion towards them. And so he condescends to be like a nurse at their sickbed, waiting on them hand and foot. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And David's saying, it's like Yahweh is at my sickbed, turning it over, any lumps, anything that's uncomfortable. He's giving me comfort. Doesn't mean that they don't feel the pain of the sickness, but it means the Lord is there to comfort them. So do you see the Lord's care for his people? This is why the New Testament says that the Lord is the Father of mercy. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. And he's rich or great in mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. And probably most appropriately here, he is tender in mercy. Luke chapter 1 verse 58. So do you get the point here? The whole point here is exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they will be shown mercy by God himself. Now, here's the problem. Anybody else kind of like twitching in their chair being like, oh man, I wasn't very merciful this morning to my kids or my spouse even on the way to church. And that's just the last couple hours. Let's go back through the rest of the week and how merciful have I been? Well, let's go back even further to when before you were a Christian. Brothers and sisters, the problem with this command to be mercy, which the Lord requires of all of us as his image bearers, is that this kind of mercy that David's talking about is impossible for us. In our fallen state, in Adam, because of how radically depraved we are, all of our faculties are not pointed towards the end for which they were created. The love and glory of God and neighbor. Instead, we're turned in on ourselves. 
And so what do we do with the weak and the needy? Maybe we'll throw some money at them. But generally speaking, we're harsh and dismissive to them in our fallen state, aren't we? I don't want to have to think about that. You want to know why we don't want to have to think about that? And we still struggle with this even as new creations in Christ insofar as the flesh still rages within us. Because when we come face to face with someone who's weak and needy, it's like looking in the mirror, isn't it? It's a fellow fallen image bearer. I'm just as weak and frail as they are. And I don't want to look that in the face. I want to just keep moving on. Just want to keep... Pretending like it's not going to catch up to me. That's why Thomas Aquinas, in his helpful little section in the Summa Theologica on mercy, he says, those who reckon themselves happy and so powerful that no ill may befall them are not so compassionate. They're not compassionate at all. How can they be? Because there's no milk of human kindness in them, is there? And so they run. They run from human weakness because they don't want to be reminded of their own. And so they just remain caught up in their own little world. And we've all been there, haven't we? In our fallen state. And we still are tempted to go back there at times, aren't we? So here's the question then, brothers and sisters. How do we become merciful like this? How have we, as God's children, become merciful like this? We see, the only way we can become merciful is if we are first shown mercy. The only way we will be merciful to others in their weakness is when we understand the reality that God has shown mercy and compassion to us when we were weak. And the scriptures are abundantly clear that that's exactly what he's done. Listen to Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe a deserving person, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the only reason there's any mercy in our lives that we show towards others, brothers and sisters, like this kind of mercy that David's talking about, is because the Lord has first shown mercy to us when we were dead and lost in our transgressions and sins. And how has he done that? He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be that perfectly merciful man that we have all failed to be. Because when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, what do you see? You see perfectly the one who always had wise dealings with the poor. The Gospels are just littered with examples of this. We don't have time to go through all of that. But what is Jesus doing? Why is he doing that? To the glory of God and to fulfill all righteousness. That righteousness that God requires of you and me to perfectly be merciful to those around us that we've all failed to do. Jesus is fulfilling that perfectly in our place so that that righteousness is now counted as ours. So that God now interacts with us and treats us as if we have been perfectly merciful and compassionate as Jesus was. And then he goes to the cross. Why does he go to the cross? 
He doesn't have any sins to pay for. He's paying for your sins of lack of compassion and mine. That wrath that we deserve for our sin against God and not obeying Him, Jesus pays that penalty in full so that there is none left for you or for me. Do you see the mercy and grace of God? And do you understand that if there's any mercy in your life, which there will be if you're a Christian, it's there because God first showed mercy to you and put His love in your heart by the Spirit. And so now grace and mercy towards others well up out of that. And so you see, when Jesus commands us, as he does in Luke 6.36, to be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. In that command is also the promise that Jesus is going to do this in us by his Holy Spirit. Because now that the Father is our Father, we will reflect his image more and more and more. And we will reflect the image of Jesus, who is perfectly merciful. And so here's the guarantee. We will grow in this, brothers and sisters. Progressively. To the benefit of our neighbor and to the glory of God. Putting his character on display. And the ways that we fall short of that. Like we're all probably feeling convicted of right now. We repent of that. We hate that. And we receive mercy and forgiveness from the Lord. And from his hand. And as we do that and behold his mercy and grace. We grow more and more compassionate towards those who are weak and needy around us. And I'd be amiss if I didn't take the time just briefly to say, brothers and sisters, I'm constantly encouraged by how you do this with one another. I mean, I know you hear this from us a lot probably, but we as pastors regularly find out about ways that you show compassion and mercy towards each other that we had nothing to do with. I mean, which shouldn't be surprising to you, but to us, it's heartwarming. We didn't even know these things were happening and look at how you're caring for one another. And so, Sovereign Grace, I commend you and praise God for His work of mercy and compassion in your hearts. And may we be on our faces praying that we would grow still more and more so that when unbelievers come in our midst, they say there's something different about these people and they're able to know by the way that we show mercy, by the way that we love each other, that we are Jesus' disciples. So I commend you and thank God for you and the ways that my own family And me personally have benefited from that. All right, I could wax eloquent on that for too long, so let's not do that. Let's move from the reality of how the merciful are blessed to the reality that the merciful are afflicted. You're like, wait a minute, no, let's go back to the blessing part. No, just trust me, you're going to be really encouraged by this. The merciful are also afflicted. Look at verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. So what's the first affliction that the believer experiences? It's our own sinfulness, isn't it? Don't you hate it? Don't you hate it? You ever have those conversations with the Lord? You know, I think I'd definitely give up a leg, Lord, if you just remove my sinful inclinations. A hand, sure. Maybe it's just me who goes through this. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. I know if you're a believer, you hate it as well. And David's saying, Lord, I've sinned against you again. I've sinned. And so the greatest affliction, David says, is my soul affliction. 
my sin. That's my greatest problem. And, and brothers and sisters, this is a great example that David's giving us here. Is this where your heart goes anytime you're sick? David's on his sickbed. The church throughout history has used this as a liturgy for the sick, if you will. And David's, the first place David's prayers go is, Lord, I'm reminded of my own sinfulness. Now, don't misunderstand. David's not saying, because I committed some particular sin, now I'm sick in this particular way. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is, sickness is a result of the fall. It's a result of Adam's sin and my sin. And so the first place I go when I'm sick is, Lord, I need your forgiveness for my sins. Is that where you go? That's where we should go. And David's saying, Lord, I need you to heal my soul. In verse 5 there, again, me is not a super helpful translation. You see the footnote 5. He says, heal my soul. It's sick from my sin, so Lord, be gracious to me, forgive me. And David knows that that forgiveness is him. The Lord will show him mercy in the Messiah. So do you see what's happening here? David's saying, blessed is the one who shows mercy because he's going to be shown mercy in his affliction. David's going, I know I've shown mercy to those who are afflicted in their weakness. And now, Lord, I'm crying out for you to do the same to me. And he's confident that the Lord is going to do it. So the first affliction he sees is his own sinfulness. Second of all, he says, I've got enemies. Look at verse 5 with me. I've got enemies, Lord. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Wow. That is some serious hatred, isn't it? Because you understand what he's saying here? He's not just saying, David, I wish you would die. David's enemies are saying, I want your whole family line to be cut off. I want you to die and be in the grave and your children to die and be in the grave so that your family line ends with you. Whew. Kind of hatred that Cain had for Abel. It's the kind of hatred that the seed of the serpent, brothers and sisters, unbelievers, ever since the fall, have always had for the seed of the woman, believers. And so that's what we see here. And David knows the stakes are high with his enemies, doesn't he? Because what's important about David's line? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9, the Lord promises to David, I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to put down your enemies. Your name is going to be so great, David, that eventually one is going to spring up who's the promised skull crusher of the snake promised back in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 he's going to sit on your throne forever and ever he will be the king of kings and lord of lords david knows this and so he's crying out to the lord saying lord i'm afflicted my enemies want to kill me and cut off the family line from which the promised one the messiah will come david's enemies are even more devious though look at verse 6 and when one comes to me, to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. Remember, David's on his sickbed here. So what's happening? What's happening is a common ancient practice that you would go and you would see your enemy on their sickbed. It may seem kind of weird to us. You have an arch enemy, you probably don't want to go see him while they're on their sickbed. That's what happened in this culture. But David says they're coming for all the wrong reasons. Notice that he says they utter empty words. Oh, David, 
we're, it's all a charade, but they come in and say, we're so sorry to hear that you're sick. We really hope that you get better soon. Meanwhile, they're saying, man, when is he and his entire family going to die? So they're coming on false pretenses. What are they doing? David says their heart is gathering iniquity. They're listening to what David has to say and observing what's going on in his sickbed. And then they interpret it in the worst possible light and then they blab it to everybody. They gossip, they slander, they spread lies, they try to destroy David's character and reputation in the eyes of other people. Has this ever happened to you? Not a pleasant experience, is it? I've never had enemies that wanted to kill me and my family, so far as I know. But I have had people do this, and it's really, really difficult. And David's saying, this is part of the affliction that I'm experiencing. He says, they then get together and devise evil plots. Look at verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They get together after they've all visited David. They compare notes and they try to paint the worst possible picture of him that they can. And these whisperings, the word in Hebrew is their evil whisperings. And you know that they're devising evil for him. Because again, look at how the footnote translates it. They imagine the worst for me. Literally, they devise evil against me. These are some wicked, wicked, cunning enemies that David has. And he is saying... It is very difficult for me to bear up their affliction. Gets worse. Look at verse 8. They say, his enemies, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. The verbiage here in the Hebrew is interesting, but essentially the idea is he's been cursed. Curses were a big thing in the ancient world. An evil word has been spoken upon him. That's why he's sick and he's not going to be able to get back up again. This is going to be David's end. And so David's not only afflicted by his own guilt over his sin, he's afflicted by these enemies that just want to kill him, wipe him out, end his family line. But David says, Lord, my afflictions don't end there. I can't even trust my own friends. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Some commentators have guessed that this might be Ahithophel from 2 Samuel chapter 15, who was a close, trusted friend of David's. But then when Absalom, his son, rebelled against him and tried to take over the kingdom, Ahithophel turned on David, betrayed David, And then went with Absalom. We ultimately don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But the point is, David says, Lord, I entrusted myself to this friend. Has this ever happened to you? I entrusted myself to them. And David says, I had fellowship with them. We ate bread together. That was a big deal in the ancient world. Fellowshipping over a meal. And David might even be saying... He was dependent upon me for his food, for his livelihood. So there should have been a sense of faithfulness and loyalty, but there wasn't. Instead, how does this trusted friend treat me? David says, he kicks me while I'm down. You ever seen a horse kick somebody? Terrifying. Don't ever stand behind a horse. Unless you really know that horse, and even then don't. But David's saying, that's what my trusted friend has done. It's like out of nowhere, just boom, kicks me. Like I'm an enemy or something. Like I was threatening them. 
David's saying, Lord, this is so hard. I'm so afflicted. So to whom does David turn? I mean, he can't turn to himself. He knows that there's a traitor within his own heart, his remaining sinfulness. And his body is failing him. He's on his sick bed. His enemies certainly think he's going to die. He can't turn to his enemies because he doesn't trust them, obviously. Can't even turn to his own trusted friends. So to whom does he turn? As always, by God's grace, David turns to the Lord. Look at verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So what's David doing? He's doing what he often does in the Psalms. He's waiting on the Lord. Be gracious to me. Raise me up. And then does this make you a little nervous? That I may repay them. Ooh, what? David? You being filled with vengeance here? I thought vengeance was the Lord's. Well, don't forget who David is. David is the king of Israel. And Israel is a theocracy ruled by God. And so what Israel does under the command of God is as if God himself is doing it. And so these enemies of David are God's enemies. And so God wants David to wipe them out. And so David says, Lord, put me in a position, raise me from my sickbed so I can strike them down. Because they're essentially rebelling against your anointed. That's who the king of Israel was. The Lord's anointed, David himself. So he's not looking for vengeance here he's looking for justice now as we've been going through that i hope you've been asking yourself this question how does this psalm find voice in the life and ministry of jesus christ because hopefully you've been listening to this going man this is jesus jesus sings this psalm now you say verse four be gracious to me heal me for i've sinned against you jesus can't obviously sing that part of it But all the rest of it he can. Doesn't Jesus have enemies that just hate him? We can go through the Gospels and find multiple places where they try to kill him. They're constantly plotting. They're constantly getting close to him and getting information and trying to use it against him. They devise evil plans. And when he dies and he's in the grave, don't they say a curse is on him? Cursed is everybody who dies on a tree. There's no way the favor of the Lord was upon him. Let him deliver him if he trusts in him. And here's the interesting thing. If you think to yourself, Jay, you're really stretching it here. You want to know how I know I'm not? Because Psalm 41 verse 9, let me read that for you. Jesus quotes on the night of the Passover. Verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus quotes that very line in Psalm 41, verse 9. In John chapter 13, verse 18. He's in the upper room celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And they're curious who's going to betray him. And it's Judas. And Jesus says, listen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 41, in particular, verse 9. Jesus says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I know who I am. I am the promised seed of David. 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Who will sit on the throne forever and ever? I will magnify the Lord. I am this promised one. And so, while David was a type and shadow of the king that I will come and be, I am that reality. And ultimately, this psalm is about the close friend Judas who betrays me. The very one who is sharing this meal with me will betray me. And so, what we see is that no one has known more vicious enemies or more severe betrayal Or affliction than who our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what do we know? Did he remain dead? In the grave like his enemies said? A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he falls. No he rises from the dead. Showing that he was not cursed for his sin. Because he had no sin. He was cursed my God for our sin. For our redemption and for our salvation. And the Lord's stamp of approval that that's the case. That he accepts that gift is then he's raised from the dead. The Lord healed him. If you will. Now here's the thing. Before we move on. We have to think about affliction in our own lives. Whether that be sickness. Or betrayal from enemies. Or betrayal from close friends. Or the weightiness of our own guilt and sin, when we're in that season of affliction, brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we need to comfort our souls is to know who's sitting there on our sickbed. Who's right there with us through it all? Remember verse 3. The Lord is turning over all my bed. He is there comforting me. It doesn't mean that He removes the affliction. David doesn't say the blessings of the merciful and compassionate is that he won't experience any of that in his life. No, David says the blessing is that the Lord is there caring for me, comforting me like a good nurse, making sure that I'm comfortable in my bed. And I love what C.H. Spurgeon has to say about this in his Treasury of David. It's his commentary on the Psalms. I highly recommend it to you. But in that work on this psalm, Psalm 41, he relays this story, this anecdote about a Christian who was on their sickbed. They essentially knew that they were going to die. And another fellow Christian came and visited them. They were showing compassion and mercy on someone who was sick. And this person who was visiting said, how are you today, sir? And the Christian on their sickbed said, my head is resting very sweetly. On three pillows, infinite power, infinite love, and infinite wisdom. Do you see what he was saying? It's not that I'm probably going to die from this, and it's really painful, and I don't want to die. I don't like this affliction. But you know what? The Lord is my nurse. He's attending to me. And in his word, he reminds me who he is. That the one who is infinite and in control of all things because he's all-powerful has brought this into my life. And he's not done that to destroy me, but because he loves me. And you know what? My wisdom is short-sighted. He is infinite in wisdom. He is wisdom itself. And brothers and sisters, it's our privilege to comfort ourselves with the same realities. To rest our poor, weary souls on these same pillows of divine comfort. Whether we're sick 
or sinful or smitten by friends or enemies. And you know, as we think about our own affliction, sometimes we think, Lord, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) You ever ask yourself that? Lord, why this affliction? And oftentimes we don't know the answer to that specific question. But here's what I can always tell a fellow believer. I know that he's not just doing it for you. I know he's doing it for your sanctification. Absolutely. But you know what I also know he's doing? He's doing it for the good of his church. He's doing it for the good of your fellow brothers and sisters. Because why? When you're afflicted, who do you run to for comfort? We're dependent created beings. So in our affliction, our suffering, which we were not created for, we're going to run for comfort somewhere. And as believers, we run to the Lord, and He comforts us as we're talking about. And then here's the thing. With that comfort, with with we've been comforted, we then come alongside other fellow brothers and sisters who are afflicted themselves. And while we don't just ram the truth of God's comfort down their throat, no, we come alongside of them and weep with them while they're weeping, patiently walk alongside of them. We know that the end goal is to always point them to the only one who can comfort them through whatever their affliction is. It's to point them to the Lord. And you see what Paul says in a place like 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, which we don't have time to look at, but write it down. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-7, through 7, Paul says that's the whole point of his apostolic ministry. I've been afflicted so I can be comforted by the Lord and then comfort you in your affliction. And what I'm saying is that's true for all believers. Paul had a unique apostolic calling, but that calling to be afflicted and comforted so that then we can comfort other believers is what the Lord is up to in all of our affliction. And so we should remind ourselves of this. I'm not just enduring this for me. I'm enduring it for the body of Christ, that I'll be comforted and then be able to share that same comfort with others. And here's the thing. Oftentimes our affliction does end in our death, doesn't it? Sometimes the sick bed does become a deathbed. Sometimes our enemies do strike us down physically. It happens. But here's the other pillow we can rest our head on. Death has been conquered, brothers and sisters. Jesus experienced that sting of death on the cross, so we never will. We will never experience the wrath of God for our sins like Jesus did on the cross in our place. Because he did that as our substitute. And here's the thing. Just as he received a glorified body when he rose from the dead, we too will receive a glorified body. So death doesn't have the final word. The gospel does. Christ's mercy towards us does. And so what we see, even in our affliction, is that the Lord is causing us to grow so that we'll be more merciful to others and we revel in his mercy towards us through whatever affliction we're experiencing. So we've looked at the first two realities of the fact that the merciful are blessed, the merciful are afflicted, and lastly, and I promise shortly, we'll look at how the merciful are upheld. Look at verse 11 with me. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. This is a little bit of what we were just talking about. David says, listen, Lord, I know that you delight in me, that you love me. 
that you rejoice over me with singing. And an evidence of that is when my enemies are not able to shout over me in triumph. And David says, they won't. (laughs) Because Lord, I know your promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're going to carry me through this. I'm clinging to that and I'm resting in you and I know you're going to fulfill your promises. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we can know the same reality that our enemies will never triumph over us because of the cross. Because what happens at the cross is that Jesus deals the decisive blow to the flesh and the world and the devil and establishes peace between us and God. And so none of our enemies are going to be able to shout over us triumphantly because they've already been defeated. Now, no doubt we don't experience all of that victory yet until Jesus comes back, until the fullness of the kingdom comes. But we look at the cross and know the victory's been secured, and we're going to be faithful by God's grace through the affliction from our enemies until Jesus comes back and wipes them all out. And he will. Whether those enemies be a part of the world, human enemies, whether it's sickness or death, our own sinfulness, They will all be completely eradicated. And this is an evidence of God's love towards us. As if that weren't enough, look at what David goes on to say in verse 12. He says, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Again, you may go, whoa, David, what are you saying here? But you have upheld me because of my integrity? David, are you saying that you're somehow perfect in your integrity? And so because that's true, the Lord delivers you from your sickbed and delivers you from your enemy and forgives you of your sins. Is that what David's saying? No, we already know David's not claiming perfection because he asked to ask the Lord for forgiveness in verse 4. So what's David saying? David's saying, no, the Lord has healed me of my sins. There's nothing wrong with saying that or forgiven me of my sins and has healed me of my sickness and has protected me from my enemies and will crush them. Yes, because I have walked in integrity. And part of that integrity is that I've actually repented of my sins and turned away from them. And so what's the dynamic that we're seeing here? We're seeing that David's saying the Lord has done all of this and is blessing me in these ways because he's shown mercy to me And as a result of that mercy, I am now merciful and showing compassion to the weak and the needy. And so then he blesses me by delivering me from my illness and my sins and my enemies. So yes, he's blessing him for his integrity, but it's not somehow meritorious. All of it is as if the Lord is giving mercy, then blessing with mercy. It's grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And who gets the glory? Not David, but the Lord. So what we should be amazed at and humbled by is the Lord's grace and mercy in all of this. Having said that, it gets even more amazing. Did you notice the second half of verse 12? And set me in your presence forever. Brothers and sisters, what do we want more than anything else? Isn't it to be in the presence of our Creator and our Redeemer? To behold His glory, to worship Him without being held back by our remaining sinfulness and sickness and the distraction of our enemies. Isn't that what we want more than anything else? David says, Lord, that's 
what you have done. Because of your son, because of his person and work, I am set in your presence to worship you with your people for all eternity. You are my great end. The great end for which I have been created. And you are the one who has done this. And brothers and sisters, what's the only appropriate response to that? To the Lord's incredible mercy towards us in his son. It's doxology. And so how does this psalm end? With doxology. Look at verse 13. Blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Where else can David end? Where else does he end the first book of the Psalter? He has to end in praise and worship and glory of God. He has to. He wouldn't be able to contain himself. You know who else couldn't contain themselves in this kind of a response? Remember a a guy named Zechariah? John the Baptist's dad. You remember what happens to Zechariah? He serves as high priest in the temple. Doesn't believe the angel of the Lord who comes and says, your wife Elizabeth in her old age is going to have a baby. Zechariah's like, that's not, that's not going to happen. Okay, you lose your powers of speech, says the angel. You're not going to be able to speak until the baby's born. And then Zechariah doesn't open up his mouth until they're trying to, John is born and they don't know what they're going to name him. And the angel loosens Zechariah's mouth, and he says his name is John. And then the very next thing out of his mouth is a prophecy. Because he knows my son's the front runner for the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He's on his way. So what does he do? He bursts out into song. And the first words out of his mouth in that prophecy in Luke 1, 68, are blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's quoting Psalm 41, verse 13 here. And he goes on to say, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah knows all the promises find their yes and amen in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has come, and he has come to show mercy to the weak. He hasn't come for the righteous, which is good because that's none of us. He's come to seek and save the lost, the sick, the needy, the poor. And he lavishes mercy on us so that we're merciful ourselves. And what's our only appropriate response, brothers and sisters? Worship. Praise be to God forever and ever. And we know we'll spend the rest of our lives being made more and more merciful in light of his mercies. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We acknowledge that the only appropriate response to the mercies that you've shown us is to worship. As Paul says in Romans 12, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so Lord, in light of the grace and love and mercy that you've shown us, that's exactly what we do. We thank you for the privilege of knowing the blessings of being merciful. Pray you'd cause us to grow more and more as we look to Jesus, who is perfectly merciful in our place. Forgive us our failures of being merciful. Carry us through our afflictions by your mercy. And may we rest in knowing that you will uphold us until, Jesus, you come back and your kingdom comes in all of its fullness. In the meantime, may we spread the good news of your mercy, Lord, near and far. 
even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And may you keep us faithful till you come back. May you find us about that work when you come back, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.